First off, we speak to Anthony May. Anthony was one of the UK's top legal headhunters and a fascinated observer of the Magic Circle and White Shoe US law firm scene. He confirms that the competition for talent within legal services remains white hot. In our interview, he discusses the COVID effect, the influence of artificial intelligence, and a subject very close to his heart, social mobility within the professions. You've had a particularly interesting viewpoint as a, as a headhunter working in that world. So you've been intimately involved with it, but at the same time, sort of slightly removed and therefore able to sort of observe it as an objective observer. Take us through your kind of career pattern and how that developed. Well, I've been very lucky in some of the clients that we've been able to work with in that some of the biggest professional services firm, whether it be the top of the legal market, both in the US and the UK, as well as the big four, and often not just doing their front of house hires, but also their major functional hires. So working with managing partners and chief executives on how they lead the firm. And we've also established some firms in new markets. So some of the American white shoe firms in London, again, working with firms like Simpson Thatcher and Sullivan and Davis Polk. We have still quite a, a unique view to go alongside the Magic Circle and the Big Four. And quite a lot of in consulting as well as headhunting in there asking, what should we do and how should we do it rather than just the execution of it? Who are the people who are going to do it for us? You're one of the individuals responsible for the extraordinary inflation in salaries that we've seen since the Americans first turned up 10 or 15 years ago and all these headlines that one reads in the Financial Times and elsewhere about newly qualifieds now being paid well into six figures. Um, I don't think I'd take personal credit for that. However, the, the sort of creation of an elite market of a relatively small number of US firms and a small number of UK firms that sort of do dominate the top of the market with quite a different profitability model from most of the rest of the market. I suppose that has happened over the last 10, 15 years, and we played a role in, in fueling that. For those firms, they are prepared to pay a lot more money and they've remained profitable. It's not like this has reduced their profitability. Most of these increases in pay have come during a period where the partner profitability is also increasing. So it is it is a market-driven factor. Do you think that it is the influence of America that has changed the legal profession the most in the last sort of two to three decades then? Two to three decades is a long time, but certainly in the last 10 or 15 years, the US firms have taken a, an expansionary role and using the UK and also some outfires in Asia as their sort of hubs, they have changed the market. And it was sort of a cosy monopoly among the top UK firms who dominated the London market, but also had, because of their growth, begun to dominate most of the European markets and some of the Asian markets. And they had it a bit to themselves. The US firms have come into that and say, well, we can do that too. And now it is mainly the, the strategy of the expansionist US firms at the top of the market that is now pushing the magic circle uh, and some other, but mainly the magic circle firms into a sort of defensive strategy. Now we're emerging post-Brexit and post-COVID. What do you think has sort of changed? Because 
clearly, you know, our working patterns for all professionals across the board has altered in the last couple of years. But what changes are you observing in the market with which you're most familiar here in the UK? So far, the Brexit effects are relatively limited and have been hidden under the much bigger impact of COVID. And when COVID struck, most large professional services firms, and definitely the law firms, were drawing up their disaster scenarios of what does it look like if it's 10% less revenue or 15% less revenue. And the remarkable thing is that virtually none of those scenarios occurred. And in many cases, quite the opposite. So when you look at the sort of leading US firms and the Magic Circle firms, all of them really have increased their revenues during an environment where their costs have gone down with much less international travel, less facilities costs. Also, because they put in quite a lot of cost cutting based on these disaster scenarios, they're nearly all more profitable than they were a year ago. Part of the thing when you ask about the salaries, this has allowed the competition for talent to eat up because profit margins are higher now than they were two, two years ago. And I think that that, that is remarkable. And, and it is not looking like it's going backwards. It is extraordinary, isn't it, that you, you get to the position where you talk to investment bankers and they're almost envious of newly qualified. So you, that you're, you know, you'll you'll earn more money if you're joining a magic circle firm or one of the big US firms in your very early twenties than you would if you joined JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. It is a sort of reversal that probably most people didn't expect. And I think one's got to separate the short term pressures from some more fundamental structural issues. So there was a as demand increased and the delivery model was slightly changed in the last year and a half, there has been competition for talent at the lower level to, to do that to do those things. And some of that has been exacerbated by COVID. So that short-term pressure at that new lawyer level. I think when you look slightly further up the demographic scale, there is an also a different sort of competition, particularly in London and, and Europe, and also probably drifting into Asia now at the sort of senior associate council partner cusp, where there is a great deal more competition than there was historically. And, and this is, again, where the US firms are using US wage rates and being very aggressive, backfilling some of their practices where they established with trophy hires and small teams 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago, but now are backfilling with more junior people to make genuinely competitive scaled departments. What do you think the difference is if we're talking about the professions between a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant and an investment banker? Because the general perception is that the first three are professions, but investment bankers aren't. Indeed, when there was a government inquiry into it a number of years back, they were sort of rather snootily relegated to a sort of a lower level. I mean, what do you think is still there in our perception that maybe goes back to Victorian times about the difference between being professional and and somebody who's there working in the the money markets? I would separate out the medical profession an inherently unconsolidated, dispersed model as their customer base is all over the place. And also they do supposedly swear a Hippocratic oath, which is an ethical contract with society, while the rest of the sort of professional services organisations, their most direct contract is with their, their shareholders, which may be their fellow partners, but it's, it's a slightly different. The profit motive is more clearly 
with within those business. I would get less obsessed by this sort of professional service as a qualification or even partnership as a structure and think more of it as which are the sort of roles that are in an advisory role where their advice is the product. On the issue of reputation for the professions, if you think about the revelations that we've been hearing about recently in something like the Pandora Papers, I wonder if the UK's leading professional services firms don't appear to be often enablers of slightly shady behaviours by the very rich. The big four are taking the flack for this because they are so much bigger brands that people do know and they do get coverage in the newspapers and the reputational risk seems sort of larger. But yes, virtually every deal or every audit or M&A that you hear about related to one of the big four you can assume that there have been several law firms, possibly a couple of consultants involved in them. And actually, for the first time, there was an article in the FT talking about one of the big four and a role that some of their partners had had in a scandal and talking about how they hadn't actually been that honest to the FRC. It mentioned in one line the Magic Circle law firm that advised them, but that was it. The law firms are getting relatively scot-free so far, but they are beginning to worry about that if there is this drift of public interest and regulation, because they're all very lightly regulated at the moment, if there's this drift, how will they address the reputation if their names get swept into some of these accounting scandals and alike? The other thing that's very interesting is one's been hearing for a number of years now that the grunt-level work, the commoditized work at the bottom done by the juniors is going to be taken over by AI. Are you seeing that happening now? And is, is it likely in 10 years' time that a far greater proportion of that work is going to be done by artificial intelligence? I think the jury is still very much out on that, in that at the same time, as people are predicting this to happen, you're seeing the inflation of newly qualified salaries and the competition for talent at junior levels being much more active. So clearly, it hasn't happened yet. And actually, if you look at what technology has done in AI, digitization, virtually every other sector, these have been drivers of growth in those sectors. It's not been a sort of Luddite um, approach of taking away junior jobs. It's created more, more, more business. A hundred years ago, if you asked a professional what made them such, then they might have said working in the public interest as being an important part of that. Whether you were a man or, as you were in those days, on a woman of the cloth, that's where accountancy began. There was a sense there that they kept the rest of us non-professionals honest. And I wonder if that's still there as well, because as a lawyer, you are still technically an officer of the court as well, aren't you? You have a slightly dual responsibility there. I'm just wondering whether we're looking back in rather rose-tinted spectacles to the professions of the, the past who are a much more smaller group of people, a much more elite group of people in a much unfairer world, where it's much more difficult for social mobility for people to get there, and whether they had the social interest in their heart in the same way as we would define it now. It's been interesting, hasn't it, to observe in the last couple of months, two of the big accountancy firms, KPMG and PwC, coming out with targets for partners in 10 years' time from blue-collar backgrounds, because it's been 
pretty difficult to get onto that train. Do you applaud those two accountancy firms that I mentioned there for making an effort to do something about it? I absolutely applaud them for doing it. And this is a a very complex and difficult problem to solve. And a lot of individual organizations have tried to solve it in a sort of you know, cottage industry approach of themselves launching initiatives. And there's very few real industry-wide sort of efforts to make this slightly the entrance to the market fairer. With accountancy, because there are four players that are so much bigger than everybody else, if two of the big four do this, the other two will start following. You then actually have something which, and they're right in saying this is a five to 10 year program, in five to 10 years could start making a difference. With the legal market is so much unconsolidated relative to you know, the big four or even the, the management consultants that it is more difficult. And lots of firms had very worthy things they've done individually. But there is less of a sort of industry-wide approach, which is probably needed to improve access. Are the Americans any better at it than we are? Um, yeah. The U.S. firms in the U.S., on their ent- how they do their entry, I suppose the top colleges in the U.S., university equivalents, while they do charge, they give a lot more scholarships. So we still have a distorted access to private schooling to the top universities. And that's a sort of endemic problem that that actually the US has less of because it has less of a private school system. But nor do I think that they've solved their problems. We are unique in our dependence on a, a, a privately educated system which have smaller classes, much more investment per pupil. It's difficult to tell people that have worked very hard and spent their money to do this perfectly legally, that it's suddenly a bad thing to do to try and benefit their children's careers when for a parent, that's what you do naturally. So it's a very emotive issue. But unless you do look at it systemically, it's very difficult to see how it's going to change apart from a small percentage point here and there in each each year. It's not going to really make a dramatic shift unless there is some proper strategy behind it, which is just the same. It's a similar problem like climate change. You have to change behaviours, and governments and politicians don't like forcing people to change behaviours that people are comfortable in. These problems are, are very, very difficult to, to solve, but necessary, because it is a basic fairness.